I think that every selling organization's got an opportunity to do something similar to that. We're not all things to all people. So help your salespeople understand what you're not and what you're not trying to be and at what cost you're making that sacrifice as an organization. You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome everyone to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. Today we're talking about, oh, you guessed it, transparency and authenticity. It's one of those things that keeps coming up on the damn podcast. Why? Because the vast majority of us don't know how to do it, don't know why it's important, don't understand why it is so critical. And so as an added bonus, if you listen all the way through the episode, we're also going to talk about negotiation tactics. So if authenticity bores the crap out of you, then transparency bores the crap out of you, there's going to be a negotiation nugget at the end. To do this today, we have with us Todd Capone, author of The Transparency Sale. It'll be available seven days from today on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles. Now, Todd's not just an author. He's also a proven sales executive, led growth phase at Power Reviews as a CRO. He's not sitting in a tower spouting theory. This is real stuff from the trenches, which is why we're so excited to have him on the show. So Todd, thank you very much for taking the time and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So let's go straight to the heart of the matter. Why is transparency so critical today? Well, yeah, first of all, transparency is not boring. Um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's funny. This is a total side story, but you know, when you're writing a book, one of the things you have to do is get endorsements. And I went after an endorsement I didn't get, so I lost the sale, but I was trying to get Tyra Banks to give an endorsement. <laughs> and um, and like, you know, she, America's got talent. Well, yeah, but she just, she's like, like an entrepreneurial mogul. She just had a book come out in April called uh, Perfect is Boring. Um, so <laughs> if perfect is boring, then transparency, certainly not. And then she's, she coined the term being flossom, which is all about knowing that you're flawed, but embracing the fact that you're still awesome. And so when you ask, like, why is transparency so important? That's a really deep question. But ultimately, what we've seen from trying this whole concept of leading with your flaws in not only your prospecting, your positioning, your presenting, but then doing this thing I call transparent negotiating, uh, that we found that it actually speeds sales cycles. It increases your win rates. It helps your qualification. So you qualify deals better, faster. You know, the old axiom is if you're going to lose, lose fast. Well, if you lead with your flaws, you're going to lose flat. <laughs> you're going to lose anyway. And it makes it incredibly hard for your competitors to compete against you. The problem you go into there, unless you do it right, is you don't want to go into a sales process and go, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Buyer, this is why we suck. Like, that's not what I'm saying. Uh, there's a balance. But I was going to say, it, let's the, be the really clear. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, what we found not only through research and neuroscience and decision science, but even some things that we did while I was at Power Reviews is that being imperfect is actually the best way to get to fast sales where you win an awful lot and you give you, you and your company a lot more rope post-sale. So there's a lot of importance to it. 
And so we'll, we'll come back to the detail of, cause you, you use this approach when you were at power reviews and we'll talk about, I'll ask you in a little bit how, you know, how you did you coach that into the organization? But when you look at sales executives today, right? CROs, EVP of sales, whatever their fancy cute little title is, what are the three largest mistakes that you think they're making today in terms of training and enabling their teams? There's a lot. I mean, to boil it down to three, um, number one... <laughs> you can't make them think like they've got all of these problems we can't help them solve. Like three is oh, a yeah, doable number. As a former CRO, I know that <laughs> there is many times that I suck. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, I think number one is just that whole concept of, you know, we teach our reps to sell as though our products and services are perfect. We hide the flaws. I mean, our, our kids are growing up in a world... Like these kids who are our future buyers are growing up in a world surrounded by feedback. I mean, they're the iPad apps that they download. They're looking, I'm, my seven-year-old looked at a freaking review on a princess game to see what the <laughs> score was before she downloaded. And I was like, am, am I creating a monster here? But Netflix, like they, a show they don't know, they'll look at the star rating and whether people are liking it before they download it. Our, our Uber drivers are rating us. Like, it's become so easy for buyers to figure out why we're imperfect that don't we want to control that conversation? If we're going to present our products and services as though we're perfect, the buyer is still going to go figure out why you're not. You want that to come from you or do you want that to come from some place in the dark web or some <laughs> review site, you know, uh, and then never come back to you. And then your next step in Salesforce is, oh, the client went silent. <laughs> they went silent because they just found something about you that you didn't share. Yeah, um, Glassdoor. Like they looked at Glassdoor and realized that only irritated employees are dropping reviews. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> Glassdoor is like, I just consulted with a company and their Glassdoor rating is terrible. And I went into the executive team and I was like, do you know that your recruiting efforts are probably struggling as a result, but your buyers are doing a search and finding this stuff. Need to make a concerted effort to fix that. But when you're going into a selling situation, I think that there's a certain point where you need to be vulnerable and realize that they're going to find that on their own and maybe talking a little bit about it. But there's in the tech world, there's sites like G2 crowd and trust radius where buyers and users of different technologies are going and sharing the pros and cons of all the solutions they're using. And that's becoming really pervasive, but like social media, they just it's everywhere. It's not just your features and benefits that are out there for everyone to find. Now it's, your pros and why you suck. Well, and it's like, it's almost like being the not cool kid in high school. You didn't know everybody was talking about how uncool you were. If you weren't going to trust radius or Glassdoor or all of these other places, if you're not aware of where the information and perception and perspective about you is out there, then as an organization, you have very little ability to influence that. And then as a sales executive, you have very little ability to actually help your team overcome that or turn it to an advantage. Exactly. Exactly. I think it's, you know, being aware that that is out there and then working with your marketing organization to help you with the messaging. I picture, you know, my power reviews team, I, you know, I had some young, real go-getter salespeople that we we're bringing in, but they didn't know wh where's the line. Like, again, like I said earlier, we don't want sales reps going in and going, Hey, here's all the reasons why we suck and all <laughs> the reasons why our clients leave us. And like, no, you know, I, there's, when you think about the neuroscience behind this, you know, we're all wired to resist being sold to and anything you can do early in a sales process to help disarm that, you know, what, what's been called a limbic filter early is going to, you know, when it comes to, down to 
actually talking about the things you're great at, they're going to resonate more because you've disarmed them earlier in the sales process. So through number one of the three things that I see people doing, the next two are a little bit faster, but I think the, the second thing that I keep seeing, I've got a bookshelf here that's filled with books that talk about whoever tells the best story wins and like what the best salespeople do. Like they tell stories and we all need to tell stories. Yet when I go into these companies, I see them teaching their reps all about features and benefits and ROI and data and like Forrester reports and like all this stuff that's all logic based, but logic actually polarizes us. And, you know, we, we know today that our sales cycles that we're going through rely on a consensus sale. We're typically not selling to one person, we're selling to five plus. And if we're leading with logic, we're typically polarizing that audience. You know, like think about the political landscape where anything that's data led is going to solidify people on the right and the left with what they already know. But now they're just better because they know the arguments of the other, other side and they've emboldened their current feeling like they haven't changed. That same thing is happening in sales cycles. So we need to teach our reps how to tell stories and how to invoke emotion in the way we present and the way we position, because that brings people together. And there's there's neuroscience studies. Uh, like one study had people hooked up to an fMRI machine, which is like a you know something that actually can analyze what's happening in the brain. And they put on the movie The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And what they found is it was almost as though everybody in that room's brains were the same brain. <laughs> uh, it, it like they all bound together. It, it's amazing. And like that just talks to the fact that if we're telling stories and we're being emotional, we bring people together. If we're just focused on logic and data, we're polarizing an audience. And that, that makes a difference when you got a consensus sale you're working on. Well, an emotion, look, emotions are, you can't put them in a box. They're not pretty. They're ugly, right? They're, they're, they're unpredictable at times. We've all seen people who make a decision that's based on an emotional reaction and they can spend, as we see in the political landscape, to your point, them justify it with logic to the point of almost insanity, right? But I'm going to make that decision based off of emotion. Now, the question I would have for you is, so if I'm selling as if I'm in or if I'm transparent, let's say, then how do you, and, and you mentioned in some your other interviews that the success you had at Power Reviews was based around having everybody sell as if they were, if I get this right, a 4.2 out of 5 instead of a 5. So how do you get your reps to, number one, understand it, two, internalize it, and three, act on it? Because transparency, as I understand it from your perspective, requires a level of vulnerability that if you think about your cliched sales guy, that's typically not even on the same, you know, it's not on the same spectrum. It may be a different sport, so to speak. So how did you work with your team to get salespeople who have to have really thick skin and be okay being told no, 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 to be transparent, to be a little bit more vulnerable? How did you drive that in tactically into the organization to get the results you got at Power Reviews? Well, yeah. So, uh, you know, just to start for anybody who's not familiar with it, when I was at, so Power Reviews, what they do is they help retailers and brands collect ratings and reviews on their website. So if you go to crocs.com or Jet or Vineyard Vines and you're looking at a product and you scroll down on the product, you'll see ratings and reviews and that's Power Reviews doing it. And we did a study that showed that conversion on a website. So when a buyer is left to their own devices to make a purchasing decision of any level of consideration, conversion happens highest when the rating, the review score is a 4.2 to a 4.5, which means a product, let's say it's a pair of shoes on Crocs, will sell better 
if it has a 4.2 score than a five score. And so that's what you were referring to with that, you know, selling as though you're a 4.2. And I, I'll give you an example. So I went into, I was in New York, a rep of mine called and said, oh my gosh. And it was a big apparel manufacturer, retailer up in New York that came in over our inbound line. And so, you know, he was calling me all excited about it. And I was like, well, I'm in New York, call him up and see if he wants to go grab coffee. He called him up and it turns out he said, yes, I went into the office right away. And it turns out they didn't want coffee. They wanted a presentation and he brought <laughs> eight people into the room. And so it's like this Manhattan office, eight people jammed into this little room. And this guy is total, like, you know, very New York, which is very dramatic. Those of us like, from New York know what you're talking about. Well, yeah, like, hey, let's just get to it. Exactly. He's like, hey, let's just get to it, Todd. Uh, I've been talking to your, your big competitor. They were in here. They, they sound really impressive. Tell me why Power Reviews is better than them. And like, I'm looking around the room and they're, they're readying for the sales pitch. Like you can see their filter is on. And uh, instead of doing that, I was like, well, can I start with why they might be the better choice? And they all looked at me funny and they're like, well, sure. And, you know, there was something on that competitor's roadmap that was kind of off the ratings and reviews focus that, you know, some apparel companies are, are liking and, and investing in. And I, it wasn't even on our roadmap. So I was like, hey, listen, can I just start with this? This is something that they're working on. There's a couple of apparel companies that like it. We're not doing that. It's not on our roadmap, but here's why. And then I explained like why our focus was what it was. They complete, like the whole room melted. And they were like, well, wow, I, you know what? I, that could be important at some point, but I'm assuming you've got partners that can help with that. Like, well, yeah. Like, all right, well, cool. Well, let's not worry about that. That's great. All right, let's go on to why you guys are better. And that sales process, which normally would have been six months, we actually got that deal in six weeks. And four, wow. of, the weeks, four of the weeks were in the T's and C's negotiation. Oh, yeah. Um, the analogy I always use is like, you know, think about the last time you went to Ikea. You know, Ikea doesn't hide the fact that you're going to go into the store. You're going to get lost in the labyrinth of aisles. You're going to write down a code. You're going to go into the warehouse yourself with a rickety cart. You're going to load the box onto the cart and then Tetris style jam it into your car. <laughs> and then you're going to get home and you're going to try to put this damn thing together. And there's not a single word on the instructions. It's all like crayon writing instructions. Yet you're going to end up with modern Scandinavian design furniture that you didn't pay a whole lot for. And odds are you're probably going to go back. And so, you know, I always think about that as, some of the most, and, and by the way, Ikea is the number one furniture retailer in the world and has been for the last eight straight years. So they're not hiding the fact that there's parts of this experience that are going to suck. But if what your goal is, is to have great furniture that you didn't pay a whole lot for, then we're the place for it. I think that every selling organization's got an opportunity to do something similar to that. We're not all things to all people. So help your salespeople understand what you're not and what you're not trying to be, and at what cost you're making that sacrifice as an organization that, hey, we know we're not going to get every deal, but here's why we're doing what we're doing, because we really believe in our core value of providing X. Well, it's what, I, I mean, we're talking about, essentially talking about radical honesty, right? It, yeah. Applied to oneself. Like, hey, we do this really, really well. And if this is what you're looking for, then, hey, we're great. But you know what? We don't do X, Y, and Z. 
So if that's what you're really looking for, then we're not a fit. And let's just be honest. It's the same thing on pricing. And we say to our clients all the time, look, if your number one thing is price, then go talk to somebody else because we're not going to be a fit. I can tell you that right up front. No harm, no foul. And you know, let's stay in touch, see how well it works. Exactly. I go back to though, that's a challenge. Like, I mean, we've all seen them. We've all, shit, I probably was one of them at one point, those sales guys that were like, oh, hey, I, there's a deal here and I'm going to get it. And they go kind of crazy over it. So from an executive standpoint, when you were at Power Reviews, driving that into the organization, that awareness that it's almost an emotional honesty that's difficult to teach. So I'm, I'm really curious when you had reps, when you were looking for reps to bring onto the Power Review team, were there things that you were looking for that you knew would enable this transparency or radical honest approach that maybe some other execs aren't looking for? That's a really good question. I mean, I think about, you know, in the book, I have a little bonus chapter that's got a couple of different topics. And one of the topics is transparent interviewing. And I've had people that I've been recruiting come into interviews and say, hey, Todd, like, you know, I was looking at your job description and you're, you're looking for, this is a bad example because I've never looked for this, but it's, the example would be like, you're looking for somebody who has an MBA. And I, I saw that and I realized that, you know, I don't have an MBA, but here's why I didn't get an MBA. And, and so they led with that transparency in the, the interview. That disarms me because is this person trying to sell me or, or trying to really find a good fit? for his next, you know, his or her next role. And so I think that there's some things that we can be doing in the recruiting process to be looking out for a candidate's willingness to be a little transparent, a little vulnerable in the process and, and how to recognize that. That's a, that's a really good question though. It's something that I would love to dig into more. Well, at I, some point. I just think about it like, you know, I, I mean, I can be vulnerable as a nice guy and anytime I'm working with, well, <laughs> there's some that might deny that, but I can be right up front. Look, two divorces, hundreds of hours of therapy. Like, you know, there, there's a, ba- a lot of baggage over here, right? And I'm bringing it, I'm bringing it to bear. Now there's a lot of experience because I've lived my life working most of the time. And I have no problem talking about that because I've been able to put it in its boxes, so to speak. But when you see sales reps, especially younger sales reps today, I don't know if you've seen this. I have a tendency to see them. It's, it's almost like they're not... I don't mean this in a negative way, audience. So please take a deep breath. It's almost like they're not <laughs> smart enough to be scared. Like they don't know what they don't know. And that people, I mean, people buy from people is it's a, it's a, we, we all know this, but they try so hard to be something that they're not, that they do themselves a disservice. And I think in addition to structuring sales organizations and process and methodology so that it's effective for the organization, the growth, market capture, revenue gains, whatever it may be, the getting into the interpersonal coaching of really helping somebody be strong enough to be truly transparent, not only about the company they work for, but themselves adds another layer of complexity for sales executives. I think some may have challenges managing. Is that fair on my part or am I just kind of out in the ether? Oh, no, totally. I think it's one of the important things that we need to be teaching reps is empathy. Because once we break through that empathy and understand, like get a rep to understand, you know, who are the types of people that they're looking to engage in? Like think about prospecting, for example. And think about your Twitter feed or your, your LinkedIn timeline. And you know, LinkedIn, there's all these posts, just tons of posts. But which ones do you engage in? And which ones do you skip by? I think a rep can pretty much communicate that now too. They know which ones they engage in. They typically engage in the ones that speak to them, that are providing value. 
And they typically don't engage in the ones that are trying to sell them something. And like the minute we start to communicate that to our reps and they start to see that like, listen, our buyers are like us and they want to engage with human beings and they don't want to be sold to. And as a matter of fact, their brains are wired to resist being sold to. It's why, you know, it's funny. I like we were driving down the street, coming home, and we saw a couple of people walking a few doors down. They were well dressed and they had a clipboard. And it was like, <laughs> you know, it was like the, the freaking government was coming to take our provisions the way we acted. Like we ran into the house, we closed the drapes, and like we went downstairs and we're like, nobody answered the door. Um, <laughs> And like, that's the world we live in. And it's like, you know, if they were selling Girl Scout cookies, it would be different. But it was clear that, you know, they were going to try to sell us something and that wasn't Girl Scout cookies. Um, <laughs> I think we all can experience that. And reps need to understand when they're being that creepy person walking up the driveway with a clipboard uh, versus <laughs> the, the person who's there to really help them and be vulnerable and be a human being. And I think we need to figure out better ways to teach reps how to be human and how to empathize and understand what types of things they engage in and what kinds of things they don't. Excellent. So, all right. So we've talked about the individual and how this shows up in the individual. Let's talk sales methodology a little bit. Self-described sales methodology, learning theory, and decision science nut, according to the bios that, that I have. So let's talk transparency in what is essentially a radically changing business environment, right? So there's sales methodologies that have been out there forever, while well, ever being you know, 20, 30 years. That's a long time for some of these youngins. And some have evolved, some haven't. Some are more relevant in a radically transparent environment than others. So when you think about the impact that it, being truly transparent at the organizational and individual level provides, there has to be an underlying methodology that they can plug into. So what should a sales exec understand from your perspective when installing a sales methodology? How do they combine it with the concepts in the transparency sale? That's a great question. I think that when I look at the transparency sale, I think about it more as a philosophy and there's specific tactics that you can take. And the way that I wrote the book was there's tactics that you can apply to, you know, your prospecting efforts, your positioning, your presenting, creating the mutual buying plan, the way you negotiate, the way that you handle T's and C's negotiation too how you handle the post-purchase behavior. That's not a methodology. That's a philosophy and those are tactics. And I think it's really important for organizations to have a methodology that's really, really simple. One of the ones that you're obviously very familiar with, but I've always advocated for is that value selling methodology because it's easy. And you know, it's easy in the fact that I had rolled it out at a company that I was a VP of sales of uh, back in the late 2000s called Right Hemisphere. And it was within a few weeks, we just changed the way that we were having conversations with clients, where we stopped focusing on the nagging problems they can solve. And we bubbled that up to how it impacts revenue, how it impacts cost, and how it impacts risk and you know, overall client success. And the whole conversation changed. And we had a framework that we could build around. I think you know, when you think about value selling and transparency, I think the two really match up super well. Because we're not changing the fact that companies have a hundred problems, but they can only focus on four or five at a time. And those are the ones that tie most specifically to revenue increase, cost reduction, risk reduction. You know the language there. There's tons of problems. There are solutions out there. We still need to diagnose the power. We still need to have a plan with the client. 
And this is just a different way to think about how we're going to position and prospect and present. So the two marry up really, really well. And so the methodology helps you contain and maintain consistency while the, the transparency still allows you to be the best you inside of that consistent framework. Is that a fair yeah, exactly. The transparency sale is a mindset with specific tactics that help you execute at each stage. But that methodology is your overall organizational. This is the way we think about it. This is the way we track it. This is the way we measure it. And I think both are necessary. Excellent. All right. So I have to ask this, you're award-winning sales exec and an author now. Uh, bravo, by the way, writing a book is no small task. Uh, and, and we've talked before, so I, we know our perspectives are aligned in a lot of places, right? But many sales and marketing execs struggle with um, millennials in the workplace, right? The speed of change that we live with, the concept of transparency. There's a lot of stuff going on in the business environment today. And on top of that, many still look at sales training as a checkbox. Like, hey, yes. I trained them and now, ba-boom, I should be, you know, I'm ready for IPO. Or, you know what, I should be beating Wall Street prediction, which we all know, those of us in the biz, those of us that have been doing this for a while, that's not necessarily true. So I'm curious from your perspective, not only as, as, as an author, but from having been that sales executive, what advice would you give to your peers or, or other practitioners, other sales execs on the most effective way to as, install a sales methodology and augment it with things like the transparency sale? Well, that's a great question too. And I, I think about it in terms of, you know, most of the millennials that we hired and, you know, maybe we were just lucky, but, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think that the, they come with a different perspective in that uh, you're right. Like the, they want to reach the top in their first six months. I showed up for my first day at work. I need a promotion. Oh, exactly. It's like, um, <laughs> you know, you approach a girl at a bar and you're like, marry me. Uh, it's, it's, it's it, you know, we sometimes have that kind of thing, but you know, I think that if there's a few things that we did at power reviews that I think were really successful, you know, number one, we created a tiered approach to the way that salespeople are brought in and promoted. And we were very transparent with that from day one. So instead of having, you know, all the reps are one level and then there's managers and you can go from rep to manager. That's always seemed kind of silly to me we had a whole tier structure and there was basically four different tiers of sales rep and they, the reps knew what they needed to do to reach that next tier. And that just created extra motivation around them. Your brain needs a filing system. And if we create filing systems for the brains of these millennials from the first day and give them a structure that they can build on instead of just sending them out into the wild. And that's why these methodologies are so important. I think that it helps them to grow faster and feel their own growth because they're actually learning. The millennials that we had, they had this unquenchable thirst for learning and, you know, to your point, that unquenchable need to advance. And if you can balance both, I mean, there was a year at Power Reviews where we only had about 10% of our reps hit their number, yet we had less than 2% voluntary turnover that year. Wow. And, and so why does that happen? It, millennials are not all money hungry like we all used to be. Shh, don't say that to uh, <laughs> You know, they, they're a lot more about personal growth. And, you know, if, I, I think when you think about uh, checking the box with training, I think if you make a real concerted effort to make your reps, especially your millennial reps, successful and you're teaching them and you're showing that you're investing in them, you're going to have lower turnover, which just ends up in better results. And so that's the way we advocate it is invest in our reps and then give them a clear picture as to how they're going to advance and how their resume is going to look great 
because the other thing we should probably say sh around is millennials, the job that they had with me is not going to be their last job. They're not working at power reviews for 40 years. Um, <laughs> right. My goal is to make them better at what they do and help them build an incredible resume so that when it is time to leave, they're ready. Yeah. And I think that transparency, especially with millennials, it's unique on the sales side, the way you describe it, right? Because most of us come from a world where it's like, all right, we're going to hire the sales rep. If they hit their number, then maybe we'll promote them to manager without ever asking A, if they want that, B, if they're going to be any good at it, right? It's a slightly different skill set. Um, and then you take your top performer out of the field yeah. and you've got them trying to deal with a whole bunch of political you know, stuff that they're not set up to deal with as well as all of the diverse personalities that are on the team. So, I mean, it created a lot of gray area, right? So I think being transparent the way you've described it is perfect, especially for millennials. I think it should be kind of standard practice in general. Like, hey, here's where you are. Here's what you got to do to get to the next step. We're going to invest in you and help you get there. It's not some silver bullet. There's not some magical potion you got to drink. This is what you need to do. And I think that transparency, that honesty pays dividends, especially with the types of individuals that we're seeing in the sales, sales world today. Yep, exactly. And I think that whole manager thing, just for any of the younger reps who are listening that are thinking about management as an extra role, the one thing that I always advise people is <laughs> that being a manager is, or being a rep is ultimate independence. Like you control your own results, you control your own behaviors, your activities lead to the results. When you become a manager, you become completely dependent. And uh, that's something that I always try to be like, make sure that you're ready for that. That it's not always because you got great results that you're going to be a great manager because it is a completely different mindset. Yeah, I like that. I've never heard it described that way, but I'm I'm gonna steal. I'll attribute it to you, but I'm gonna steal that because that at least uh, foot, footnote me for the first three times, and then you can take it as your own. Excellent. Okay, and then I'll put TM after it. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, so we've covered a lot of new, a lot of points on transparency, but I promised some people at the beginning of the interview the Todd Capone 15 minute negotiation method. Now, look, it's named after you, so we're expecting some serious meat here. Help us understand what is this negotiation method of which you speak? Well, yeah, I, it was a, a method that happened accidentally. I was the VP of sales of, you know, I talked about earlier, right hemisphere a few years ago. And uh, we had a one and a half million dollar deal on the table with an oil services company down in Houston. My rep called me and said that they, you know, we were at the goal line of the negotiation and they didn't want the whole let me talk to my manager speak. They wanted a decision maker to come down there and we'll just get in a room and bang this out. So he calls me up. I go down to Houston, uh, beautiful in July. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a wet heat. Yeah, um, it's a wet heat for sure. So we, uh, we go in, we go into the conference room and there's, if I remember correctly, there was five people for, from, from procurement waiting for me. Um, <laughs> Ambush. And so I, I was like, I knew this was were going and I was, I was feeling like, gosh, I, I'm not just going to sit here and go, let me think about it. Um, so I wrote up on the whiteboard. I was like, here's the four things that we care about as a business. Um, and so I, I wrote down volume was number one, which is like how much you buy. Uh, number two was how fast you pay or, or the timing of cash. Number three was the length of commitment or obviously how long you commit to the technology. And the four was when you sign. And I told them, these are the four things that we care about. I know where this is going. Maybe we can help you get there. And they immediately launched into, that's really interesting. We need 30% off. And I was like, well, okay. Um, instead of fighting that, I went, 
hey, I think we can, we can get you there. And we went through each of the four levers and framed each of the four levers of, with this phrase that I use a lot, which is, we'll pay you in the form of a discount. So if you think about volume, for example, if you guys are willing to commit to more technology, you've got other divisions that were thinking about doing this that I want to wait, if we're able to pull that forward and commit now, we'll pay you in the form of a discount for that. If right now you're, we're talking about monthly or quarterly billing, if you're willing to pay annually, an oil services company in 2009, I think they had $17 billion of cash on their balance sheet. I think they could handle my one and a half million dollars. Checks in the mail. Yeah, exactly. And it was like, if you're willing to accelerate and do annual payments, that helps us as a business. And we're willing to pay you for that in the form of a discount. The length of commitment, like, you know, if they're committed to one or two years, like, hey, commit to three years and we'll pay you for that. And uh, the fourth one was, you know, again, this was July of that year. The conversation was, hey, if you're willing to help me forecast my business, there's value to me in that. And uh, I'm willing to pay you for that in the form of a discount. If you can hold this to September, we'll give you an additional 5% off. I gave them a path to 30%. They didn't want to commit longer. They didn't want to commit more, but they were willing to accelerate cash and help me forecast my business. And we got them halfway to their 30% with 15%. And there was pure transparency and trust and, and they were happy with their 15% and they got it. And that's what it is. It's, you know, instead of playing negotiation, like it's a Texas Hold'em tournament where you're hiding your tells and all that crap. This approach is let's go in and flip our cards face up on the table and tell them, this is what we're willing to pay you for. We know you want a discount. Here's how you get it. Roll your own deal. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like stop all the games, right? Just stop all the games. Like we're here, we're all here to do business. You guys need something. We need something. Let's just have the conversation, right? And normal adults, let's, let's not play games. Let's just put it on the table. I love it. And so uh, I will make sure that in the show notes that we put the Todd Capone 15 minute negotiation method TM. So that, <laughs> That's right. I don't remember what chapter it is in the book, but I dedicated <laughs> a whole chapter to it. So. Excellent. All right. So let's change the direction a little bit here. I ask all of our guests two standard questions towards the end of each interview. First is simply now as a revenue executive, you're running your own business, sales melon, sales melon, excuse me. That means you are a target in a non-politically correct way, a prospect for those that want to be politically correct. Help me understand somebody who doesn't have a relationship with you, doesn't have a referral source into you. So it's like, I don't know somebody who knows you, but I believe I have something that will truly be of benefit and value to you. What is the most effective way to capture your attention and get 15 minutes on your calendar? So I'm going to be really controversial here. Uh -oh. um, but I believe that we're entering an era where we need to stop selling in our prospecting outreaches. I think that we need to start thinking about prospecting as an opportunity to provide personalized value in a very brief way. And what I mean by that is, you know, think about your email inbox today. Like as a CRO, I was getting 50, 100 emails a day. Many of them were cold outreaches from salespeople. And the first tip I'll give you here is we've got to start thinking beyond the subject line. So we were taught to optimize the subject line in our emails because that was the difference between somebody <laughs> opening an email or oh, not. the silver bullet for this month. Optimize your, optimize your subject lines. Exactly. That used to be it. But now if you look at your email interface, almost every, like if I look at my iPhone right now, I can see the first 10 words of the email too. And when I see an email that starts with I or we, like those words specifically, I don't have time for I or we you've told me right out of the gate that this is about you and that you're going to sell me something. Right. Um, especially my favorites are the ones that say, 
hey, Todd, I, I wanted to see if you saw my email from two oh, weeks. Oh, I love that. Yeah, no, I saw it. It sucked, so I didn't reply. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> why, thanks for the reminder as to why I didn't open your last one. <laughs> and so, you know, when you think about just buyer empathy, I make the comparison that an email inbox, an email is like playing the instant lottery. There's a chance that there's something really great in there, but odds are it's going to suck, uh, whatever I'm about to open. So we've got a need to open our emails. As an executive, I have to be responsive. If my CEO or my board is asking for something, I better be on it. In so doing, I have to scroll through a bunch of crap to get there. Uh, the emails that have always jumped out at me are when somebody reaches out just providing value to me. You know, as a CRO, I had one company that sent me an email that was like, hey, here's a, a template that CROs that we work with use, and it's just a basic template uh, for how you present to a board. And just go ahead and use it. And that was it. There was no sales pitch in it. They didn't even tell me what the company did. But of course, in their email signature, I could click in. But I, I looked at this template and I was like, well, wow, there's some pieces of this that are really helpful to me. Who sent this to me? I'm like, I, I went know. back and I, I did the research myself and we ended up calling them. <laughs> like, that's the kind of stuff that I think we're heading into this world where there's just so much noise. And the second, again, because we're wired to resist being sold to, that we can't be inundated with reps that are eyeing and wee, wee, weeing all over us. They need to be providing personalized value and be genuine in that prospecting outreach. And those are the ones that stand out to me. I, I always make the comparison, that, like which things in LinkedIn or in Twitter do I interact with? Do I interact with the ones that look like sales pitches or do I interact with the ones that are going to provide some value to me? It's the same thing in the in email inbox today. I think we just need to be thinking that way. Yeah, it's a beautiful point. And if we were sitting in a bar right now, I'd be buying you another shot because that, <laughs> that concept of providing value up front when we, when we work with clients, I tell them like your first two touches, you don't ask for anything, provide right. value, show them you know who they are. And the look on these sales reps faces is like, it's a gas. Like, wait, yes. well, well, that might delay, that might delay my sales process. Yeah. But you know what? It, chances are, it's actually going to get you really qualified people that are, that understand you have thought about them. And that you are you're trying to help them rather than push something on them. Oh, it's wait. a very subtle shift. It's very subtle, but I think you're right. I think you're 100% right. It's going to be where we're headed in the future. And if people don't figure out how to do that and do it with authenticity and transparency, they're going to end up shooting themselves in the foot. Oh yeah. I mean, you've got to be showing that potential buyer that you're there to help them and not sell them. And if the first sentence out of your email is, we just finished this project for this company and we had this kind of ROI and it's just like, uh, you just wee, wee, wee all over my email. Like, I, I, like let's move on. Yeah. So <laughs> I was actually going to eat those cornflakes. Thanks for that guys. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So last question, we call it our acceleration insight. One thing, if there's one thing you could tell sales, marketing, professional services, people, one piece of advice that if they listened, you believe would help them hit their targets or surpass them. What would it be and why? Well, first of all, and it's got nothing to do with the transparency sale. I just find that in my career, when I shifted from being money hungry to this whole concept of having a thirst for learning and just wanting to be a resource for my customers and even my organization, it changed my whole career. I think that as salespeople, like sometimes I interact with people that are a little bit later in their careers and you know, you sometimes find these people that are done learning. Like, hey, I was successful with this approach in 1995. So I'm going <laughs> to damn well keep you. And I'm going to fax uh, it to you. 
Yeah, it's, I, I think that that piece is you've got to continue to have a thirst for learning always. But the, the second piece of that is that our brains make maps and being wired to resist being sold to what worked today is not going to work in six months. We've got to be on top of you know, the, the world of selling the acceleration that's happened, you know, between the time where the person invented the wheel to about the 1930s, sales really didn't evolve much at all. But from, you know, 1980 to 2018, where we are now, it has accelerated at such a rapid pace that again, what worked yesterday won't work tomorrow. And we've got to have a thirst for learning and stay on top of what is going to be effective because you're, you're going to get stuck and left behind really, really quickly. Without a doubt. I love it, Todd. So where's the best place to get the book? The transparency sale comes out again, audience one week from today, you can go pre-order it, but where, where would you prefer they go to buy that book? You know what? They can buy it anywhere they want. I'll tell you as of a couple of days ago, last time I looked, the price was lower on Amazon. So you might want to go there. Ooh, there um, you go, people save some money keep an eye on it. And I don't know if you have any international uh, listeners, yes, but it's available on uh, Amazon in Europe. And I did have a buddy of mine just check to make sure he could pre-order in Sydney, Australia, and it's available there too. So uh, wherever you want to buy, it's cool with me. Awesome. Todd, I cannot thank you enough for the time today. It has been absolutely amazing having you on the show. It's been fun. Thanks, buddy. All right. All right, everybody that does it for this episode, check us out at b2brevexec.com. You know the drill. Share the episode with friends, family, coworkers. If you like what you hear, do us a favor, write us a review on iTunes. And until next time, we wish you nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.